0: Hi, and welcome to episode 23 of Cavaliercast, The Civil War in Words, a podcast that looks at anything and everything to do with the wars of the three kingdoms. This is the first in a series of Scottish-themed episodes. I'll speak to Dominic Pearce about one of the most fascinating characters of the Civil Wars, James Graham, First Marquess of Montrose. Dominic has just released a new biography of the Marquess. The various aspects of Montrose's life and character proved a real challenge when it came to producing the episode. There were just so many interesting threads. As you know, I'm often joined by Warwick Luth, conflict and battlefield archaeologist, to mull over the topic of the episode. Now, when Warwick and I discussed the wider assessment of Montrose's Civil War military career, we ended up producing an episode in itself. So watch out for that as a forthcoming episode to come. Find out whether we agree on Montrose's greatest victory and see what you think as we piece together some of the great what ifs of the war, such as what if the king's cavalry had linked up with Montrose in the aftermath of the Battle of Naseby? How would Montrose, for example, fare in a pitched battle with the likes of Fairfax and Cromwell on English soil? Finally, just before we begin the episode with Dominic, if you're listening for the first time, or if you've subscribed to the podcast, please show your support by rating it on your podcast platform. Okay, so I'm really pleased to welcome Dominic Pearce to the podcast. Uh, so welcome, Dominic.
1: Hi there. Hi.
0: So Dominic, what sparked your interest in the civil wars? And and also, what attracted you to Montrose's
1: story? So the, um, my, uh, interest in the Civil War period arose because, first of all, I became interested in the later, uh, period of history, the beginning of the 18th century, um, when there was a protracted war in Europe called the War of the Spanish Succession. Um, and I became curious about that and interested in that for a whole set of reasons. Uh, but I began to read backwards. So I began to think, how did this conflict, uh, break out? Why was such and such a person the Holy Roman Emperor? um how was the king of france in the position he was in and so on and so forth and i basically read backwards about both continental european and british history until i hit the civil war period and then i found that was completely fascinating because of the very great events of continuing importance today in my opinion the way britain functions the constitution we have and so forth all comes from this and also some truly astonishing personalities uh, and so I became very interested in it for all that reason. And I wrote a book about Henrietta Maria, who was the wife of Charles I, which obviously taught me more when I did that. Uh, and there I discovered Montrose. So I knew that Montrose existed. I think many people have heard of the name, uh, Montrose, but with perhaps not knowing, um, a lot more about him. But what I read, uh, in some of the contemporary, uh, um, sources was I read the most fascinating sentence which said, Marquis of Montrose went to his execution dressed as if he were going to his wedding, uh, in scarlet and in silver. And I thought that is a man I have to know more about.
0: (laughs) So, can you tell me a little bit more about Montrose's early years? So
1: Montrose was uh, born. So his name, the family name was Graham. So he was part of the Graham family. Uh, The family title by the time of Montrose was Montrose, but his father was the Earl of Montrose, uh, and that was the title he would first of all um, inherit. He was born in 1612 um, in uh, October or possibly November. We don't actually know the uh, the exact uh, birth date. Uh, and he was brought up in the country. So the main residence there, obviously is a rich family, there are many residences. But the main residence of the Montrose Grahams was called Kincardine Castle, which is in Perthshire today, or Perth and Kinross. Uh, he uh, was brought up uh, as a child uh, as very much an outdoor boy, uh, a lot of riding and fighting. In When he was um, 12, he was sent off to Glasgow uh, to live with the provost of Glasgow, who was called Sir George Elphinstone, uh, and with yes. the young Lord Graham, as he was then called, um, went a tutor and went um servants. And he had a sort of bespoke boarding school, set essentially, away from home. At the age of 14, his father died. He became Earl of Montrose uh, immediately, of course. And the following year, which was 1627, uh, he went to university. So he went to university at the age of fifteen. You will notice everything happens to Montrose very young. Uh, he's at university, St Andrews University, for two years, and then in 1629 he gets married at the age of seventeen. Uh, so you can kind of think of that as the beginning of his adult life.
0: Um, and what about Montrose's
1: character? Yes, well, of course it changes. Um, What we know um, about the young Montrose was that he was a a very sociable person. So we have um, a great deal of material about his life when he was young, um, including his accounts. So we know that when he was both in Glasgow and then later on in St Andrews, he spent a great deal of money on food uh, and drink, far more than for his own household. So we know he entertained. We have lists of the castles and great houses that he visited in Scotland. and He was always going somewhere. Um, Money spent on horses. Horses, of course, were transport. Um, We know that he was an athlete. Uh, He won the archery prize twice at St. Andrew's University. He had um, a musket. He had a sword. We know all these things. Uh, But we know also he was a bit of a dreamer. And uh, this idea of him being a dreamer becomes tremendously important in his later life. Uh, He started writing poetry early, poems were written to him uh, and about him. And we know that uh, his studies were very largely of the classical world, so the world of ancient Greece and Rome, also of more recent Scottish history, but very often written in Latin. So he was very much educated, actually, as a Renaissance humanist, which tended to be rather a backward-looking uh, manner of thought. You look backwards to an ideal world, and this idea of ideals and and of how the world could be and what the right thing was would, in fact, be very important for the adult Montrose.
0: One of the medals still exists, doesn't it? The silver. Yes, it card does. Card yes, the archery medal. medals. Yes, yes, yes. Do you think he was a natural cavalier?
1: I no, I don't think he was a natural ca- cavalier. Uh, he was a very high-minded man. He was accused uh, of, um, of of womanizing, of chasing women, um, but there's actually no real evidence of that, and that was a pretty conventional um, attack by his enemies. He was certainly uh, religious. Uh, one of the most extraordinary things I saw when I was writing this book was um, his copy of uh, The History of the World by Sir Walter Raleigh, which was a bestseller of his day. Um in fact, the history of the world was largely a history of the ancient world by <laughs> by, by Raleigh. But he loved this book and he took it with him to uh St. Uh, to St Andrews, five volumes, pretty heavy and the luggage. And you can still see it today, the same copy, in um a place called a wonderful place called Inner Pefri Library, which is near Creef in Scotland. Uh, and on one of on the one on the back of one of the uh illustrations you can see a doodle, and it's a doodle by Montrose uh, in his handwriting. You can identify the handwriting, because there's plenty of that around. And the doodle is um, written within the circumference of a small coin, uh, as much of the Lord's prayer as he could possibly fit. <laughs> so uh, clearly that was an idle moment, probably for a young man, we can assume. Um, but uh, there's every sign that he took religion seriously, which is on the whole not a cavalier um quality. On the other hand, he was extremely affable and friendly, uh, very low-key. He was not a he was not proud in his behavior, very low-key with uh, everybody and very respectful. So he had a relaxed demeanor, which perhaps was something you would associate more with a cavalier, but he wasn't a sort of crazy wild guy at all. So I'm not sure that he was a I'm not sure that he was a natural cavalier. And of course, to begin with, When the prayer book revolution, sorry, the prayer book rebellion uh, occurred in the summer of 1637, uh, Montrose joined the rebels. So, for the first part of his political career, he opposed Charles I.
0: You mentioned something there that really touched on uh, something that I've thought for a little while now about Charles I. And, And I do see Charles as an absolute idealist potentially things could be going on that the truth of the matter could be stark, but his ideals
1: won't let him see that. I agree Um, with that. I think that was very true of the king, yes. yes. Do
0: do you think that Montrose and Charles I had a similar idealist tendency?
1: I I do, but I think... um, their different positions in life, um, made sort of made, made it hit them in a different, <laughs> in a different way. Uh, if you were king, it was a very, very strange, still is, as we know, with the coronation and all that. The, um, it's a very strange position to be in. It's actually very hard to understand what it was like to be king. But, um, Charles I certainly felt, uh, he had made a commitment to God, uh, to, rule the country in the right way, only he could really decide what the right way uh, was. Uh, So he, in a way, had the humility of a privately religious man, he was undoubtedly very pious personally, but he also had the absolute certainty of the monarch chosen by God. So that's a very funny mixture. And I think you you see it in the king, but I would entirely agree with you. I think there was a real powerful streak of idealism, how the world should be and how he should be, personally. Um he was a very high principled man, Charles I, as a matter of fact. And yeah. similarly, Montrose was high principled, but he wasn't king. He was a rich uh, aristocrat, certainly. But I think it was um, to be honest, less of a Less of a struggle, actually, if you were a noble than if you than if you were the actual sovereign with the great responsibilities of kingship. And and just as an aside there, I mean that
0: the other thing that sort of gets me is just how much James tried to sit on the fence, you know, and how much that policy was destined to just explode, you know, try, oh, yes, yes, no, like, no,
1: there's no question, King James <laughs> laid the foundations, I'm sorry to say, for everything that happened under his son. The difference, of course, between them was that James was had real political skills. Yeah, and Charles had was actually quite a clever man. As a matter of fact, you sometimes hear him people talk about Charles the first as though he was stupid, but actually yeah. that's not that's not the evidence at all. The evidence is he was rather clever. But what he didn't have was political skills. Um, and again, the skills he required are very complex. So perhaps we shouldn't be too um, angry with him for that. But he didn't have them actually.
0: Uh, and have you seen the, because um, in the library as well, there, there is the Montrose's uh, Bible, a small French
1: Bible. Yes, absolutely. That's the most extraordinary thing. It's um, it's a portable Bible. Uh, you can place it in the palm of your hand. It's absolutely tiny. Mm. Uh, and that's got lots, by the way, of little comments and notes by Montrose. So we know he read the Bible. But what's interesting about it, uh, other than the fact that it sort of brings you to his side, really, you know, you see this book and you you know that he held this and probably had it in his pockets. I mean, it is a very extraordinary thing to see. But uh, uh, what's interesting about it is it's, it's a French Bible. It's uh, in French. So we know that he was quite happy to read in French, uh, and we know that he probably spoke pretty good French. He, sp- he spent a year or perhaps a bit more than a year in France and it's the entire the when he was young, and then later he went back to France again. But what's also important about that is that translating the Bible into the vernacular was the absolute hallmark of Protestantism and particularly of reformed Protestantism. So reformed Protestantism is what many people would call Calvinism. It was the sort of okay. second wave of reform in the church. So you know that uh, um, uh, that uh, the young Montrose, um, who seems to have picked this up in France probably in 1633, 1634, was completely a part of the reformed Protestant movement, uh, which was, of course, Exactly, the belief of the people who became his bitter opponents later on in Scotland in what was supposedly a religious war. So that gives you a clue that the war wasn't quite as religious as it appeared to be. Of course, there were religious, important religious issues, but ultimately, like all war, it turns into a struggle about power. And obviously,
0: Montrose. You know, when you when you uh, first found out about him, as you say, you know, you you've had that uh, desire to read more about him. he had that magnetism. Do you think he was born to command men?
1: He was, in fact, an extremely charismatic man, and this is very clear from youth when he gets involved in the uh, Prayer Book Rebellion. Uh, the the bishops, the Scottish bishops, who of course were very much one of the issues in in that rebellion, you know, became terrified when they discovered that the, as you know, was, of the Earl of Montrose was joining the rebels, for example, because of the power of his character. Um, and in when he became um, an important general later on, he showed quite exceptional gifts of military leadership. So that is true. But it's also true in another sense, and that is that if you were brought up in the 17th century to be a Scottish uh, nobleman, as he was, uh, and to inherit enormous territories, the Montrose Grahams, who were by no means the richest, by the way, uh, of their class, um held land in what is now Perthshire or Perth and Kinross in, Ross, uh, in uh, Angus uh, and in Stirling. Uh, they had enormous, I mean, this would have been thousands of tenants. You were brought up to run all of that and that was the deal with the king. You held your land uh, as a kind of gift. You held it in perpetuity for all your children and so forth from the king and you owed him service. But your job was to keep the peace and to run the territories. So you had to be a leader, essentially, if you were going to be an earl, or later on a marquis. So yes, he absolutely was. uh, He was in two senses um, a born leader. He was actually always meant to be a leader. and In fact, he had the gift Mm. of leadership.
0: Yeah, so you saw a similar star quality to Rupert. Prince Rupert, uh, and Brian.
1: very much so. Um, so, and later on, of course, they they correspond, uh, Prince Rupert and, and and the Marquis of Montrose. Um, mm.
0: Again, you touched on it there. So, I mean, he really did weld a lot of unnatural allies together as a fighting force, as well, didn't he? Through that.
1: Uh, through his Yes, personality. and that was his great... Uh, uh, he made many contributions. So so, so what happened to Montrose uh, was that, to begin with, uh, he was a part of the Scottish rebellion against the king, but then he turned against the rebellion and became a royalist. Um, and when he became a royalist, he then had an extraordinary year uh, called the Year of Miracles, which runs roughly from the summer of 1644 to the summer of 1645, in which... Um, he leads, uh, he kind of leads a motley crew to fight for the king in Scotland. And he does so with absolute devastating success. And that is the absolute proof of his ability to lead, because these were not natural allies, the people in his army, far from it. But he made a success of it.
0: Yeah, that, that's right. And, and we're talking here about um, not just religious opponents, you know, Catholic, Protestant. In the same force, from about clan importance as
1: well, aren't we? Very much so. Yes, it was uh, so, so. So, part of his army was a group of um Irish and Hebridean Scots led by a man whom I have called in my book, by the way. I call him, uh, which is genuinely his name, but he has different names called. And, um, Alistair MacDonald. So there were, and they were Catholics and they were very important. And Alistair MacDonald was a tremendously important part, a tremendously important officer of, um, of Montrose. Uh, he also, after the winter of 1644, 1645, um, he had the fiery sons of the Marquis of Huntley, uh, from the Gordon clan on his side, which was very important because they brought cavalry, which is what he actually desperately, desperately needed. And they were proud, difficult and not prone to accept authority of any sort. And then he had an entirely separate set of Scots as well, um, from different parts of Scotland, but initially from the area uh, around Athol. And he had to make them all work and fight together, and he did.
0: And why do you think he changed from covenant to,
1: to royalist? Because, um, he felt that, um, he was a, tr- a true believer in, in, in the covenant cause. So, uh, he truly did not like the new prayer book, which the king tried to uh, introduce in 1637. And he truly, uh, he signed, uh, and, uh, and with the complete sincerity, and I think it was a sincerity he maintained all his life, the national covenant. So the national covenant was the manifesto of the Scottish rebellion, um, And that um, was written and signed and sent all over Scotland from uh, February of 1638. Um, So uh, he wanted the king to withdraw these measures. And what happened was the king did withdraw these measures. Uh, In fact, it's pretty clear he did so tactically, but he did withdraw these measures. And he signed, after fighting two very, very strange wars with the Scots called the Bishop's Wars in 1639 and 1640, he signed a treaty with them called the Treaty of London uh, in August 1641, and Montrose thought that having come to an agreement, the king having yielded on every point to the Covenanters, it was then the duty of the Covenanters to live in peace with the king. But he didn't trust them. Montrose did not trust the Covenanters, and he was quite right. Two years later, in 1643, they signed a completely different. Uh, International agreement with the English Parliament called the Solemn League and Covenant, which is a completely different set of agreements to the National Covenant of 1638. They sound similar, but they're actually completely different. And the Solemn League and Covenant tore up the Treaty of London unilaterally. And the uh, Scottish Covenant government pledged to support the English in their war in England against the King. All in the name of religion. And Montrose felt this was a complete betrayal of everything the king had done. There was also, uh, which we will probably come on to, the question of Montrose's rivalry with the Earl of Argyle. Um, the Earl of Argyle, later the Marquess of Argyle, became um, the most important covenant and leader. So there was also a different type of rivalry. But Montrose felt the rebellion had betrayed the king. That's what he felt, and that's why he changed sides. Do, do,
0: do you think Montrose sort of saw Argyle as starting to push the boundaries a little bit too far?
1: politically? Oh, unquest- unquestionably, and, and Argyle unquestionably did. Um, so Argyle was uh, a very true uh, and sincere Presbyterian Protestant. He wasn't a hypocrite, um, but he was also the leader of uh, the Campbell clan, um, which was probably the actual biggest uh, uh, clan with the most territory of all the noble families or the, uh, in in Scotland. Uh, And there is no question, but he used the constitutional collapse to try to increase uh, his own power Wealth. Uh, he attacked, at um, least three other uh, grand families he attacked and took prisoner the Earl of Athol. He um, attacked and burned down uh, the property, by the way, of the Earl of Erly, the Ogilvie family, who were the cousins of Montrose. By the way, uh, Montrose was also related to the to the Earl of Athol. Um, uh, and he attacked and tried to have impeached, and eventually uh, succeeded in getting uh, Montrose himself. Put in prison, so uh, so there is no question. Argyle used the um, the time of rebellion to try to increase Campbell power. Um, I think there was also a personal, as you very often found, um, a personal dislike between the two men. They were quite close in age. Argyle was about five years older than, than Montrose. But radically different uh, character uh, he was no um leader of armies for example he didn't have I would say have real leadership skills but he had a very very subtle political understanding you know uh, quite if you uh, although he was in probably the richest uh, nobleman in Scotland he was the most um Uninteresting one to look at. He was actually rather plain-looking. He was boss-eyed, uh, and he dressed as um, a Presbyterian would dress. He was not a glamorous man in any sense. Whereas, uh, as we've been saying, charisma was one of the great qualities that Montrose had. Uh, a great deal of style, and was a very direct, plain talker as well. Montrose. He was. He was an easy person on the whole. To get, not in all circumstances, but on the whole, it was a pretty easy dialogue with Montrose. So they had very, very different personal styles, uh, and and no doubt they just really didn't like each other. There's no question that Argyle came to really detest Montrose. Uh,
0: initially, did he try and uh, cultivate Montrose?
1: There, well, yes. The the Covenant uh, movement wanted Montrose to. I mean, they liked to have Montrose on their side. They. Um, Uh, And then, even when he wavered and was clearly far more sympathetic to the king, um, they offered him a position in the Covenant Army. They tried to woo him in certain ways. So, yes, absolutely, they wanted they because he was such a powerful character and uh, had um, uh, and and was an attractive uh, character to many Scots. Yes, they wanted Montrose on their side, and they certainly didn't want him on the king's side. But, um, but. He stuck, you know, literally to his guns um, and became this the visionary uh, royalist.
0: As you say, there, Montrose, you know, was outwitted really politically by Argyle, wasn't he? Really, completely. Yes. And yet- Flip it onto the battlefield, and uh, just Argyle many times was uh, trying to escape Montrose.
1: Well, the, well, the famous example. Uh, yes, although he uh, Argyle had his moments on the battlefield, he almost managed to 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 pen uh, um, uh, Montrose in. In I think it was October 1644, in an action in Fivey Castle, he surprised him um, and had uh, Montrose and outnumbered him. Had Montrose not fought a very, very skillful defensive action, he would have been captured. So, um, Argyle had his moments, but his, uh, his most painful moment was the Battle of Inverlochy Castle, which was fought in February in the course of a winter ca- campaign, uh, February, uh, 1645, when Argyle was nominally the commander in chief of the Covenant army, um, which, which fought, uh, against Montrose and lost. But actually, he just thought to be on the safe side, uh, he would get onto a boat and uh, take to the nearby sea loch, uh, um, in order that just in case things went wrong, he'd be able to get away. Uh, and so, so in fact, he did get away as a matter of. But that was probably a low. To be fair, that was probably a low point for for Argyle. <laughs>
0: yeah. and then then to make it lore as well, had he had some sort of accident, his arm was in a
1: sling. He claimed subsequently. Um uh, he peered in public uh, in Edinburgh with his arm in a sling and said so, unfortunately he'd fallen from his horse and dislocated his um I think it dislocated his shoulder. Well maybe it was true, but you know, maybe it just wasn't true, you know. <laughs> you,
0: you know. It, it smacks of um a, a naught from the parents to excuse them. Well, it <laughs> really does, no, it really, really. Is. So you mentioned earlier the Year of Miracles, uh, 1644 to forty five. Could you tell me a little bit more about uh, what made that so miraculous?
1: What made it extraordinary was um, many, many, many things, uh, and really all of those things come down to the, um, the abilities and the gifts uh, and the energy and the courage of Montrose himself. Then um, he accepts a commission from the king, which of course he wanted, to be the king's lieutenant in Scotland, and to return Scotland to obedience to Charles I. He makes one attempt with a bit of an army around him, but everyone um, leaves him. He has desertions, so he has to get out of Scotland, but then he goes back again to Scotland uh, with only three people. Uh, he is disguised as the groom, so that no one knows he's the Marquis of Montrose. He is, in fact, recognised by one person, but anyway, he gets away with it. But he literally goes, at the outset, uh into Scotland with nothing at all. And then, in the course of the next year, he fights six battles, every single one of which he wins. Uh, No one else did that in the Civil War. No one else did that in the Thirty Years' War, currently being fought in the Holy Roman Empire. No one else did it in the Dutch War of Independence, which was uh, also being fought at the same time. So he was, and this earned him an enormous celebrity in Europe. But his battlefield success was quite extraordinary. But he also had a number of other actions in which he showed an extraordinary distinction. So, by the end of the year, having gone into Scotland without anyone behind him at all, he has actually succeeded in what appeared to be completely impossible. He appears to have conquered Scotland for Charles I. So, it is really really an extraordinary achievement. And what is also true, of course, is that despite this quite extraordinary succession of victories and success, um, the next battle he fought, the Battle of Philipore in uh, September, I think, of 1645, he loses. But he survives to carry on the fight.
0: That image of Montrose just riding, you know, dressed as a groom, uh, uh, crossing the border with two other men, royal standards stitched into the saddle with that's his right. commission. Yes, no, that's right,
1: hidden, of course. And, and, and the commission itself, because he had to have the document which showed that he had, you know, signed by the king, of course, because. The, he, in fact, succeeded in raising an army with a certain amount of help. Um, But you couldn't have foretold that he'd be able to do that. Um, oh, I mean, no. it, is, it is most extraordinary, very courageous, actually. And if he'd been caught, he would have been killed. Mm. He'd been forfeited uh, by the covenant of government. In other words, he, or he'd he been deprived of all of his property. Uh, he'd been deprived of his titles, and he was excommunicated. And in fact, when in the end he did die, which was in 1650, He was never tried uh, by a court in 1650, but there was that original forfeit was considered to be the legal grounds for putting him to death. Whichever way you
0: look at it, extraordinary. What do you? Yes, extraordinary,
1: very extraordinary. Mm.
0: It it leads on to another question: How much of that 1644 to 45 success would you put down to Montrose, and how much uh, Alistair
1: Macdonald? So the way I think about it is this. That Alistair MacDonald provided the uh, nucleus of his army. So Alistair MacDonald landed, um, with his uh, about 1600 men on the west coast of Scotland in the early summer of 1644 and met up with Montrose. And, uh, in the early battles, so the first two battles were called Battle of Tippermuir and the Battle of Aberdeen. It has different names, but I've called it the, the Battle of Aberdeen. And Alistair MacDonald was of enormous importance in those two battles. That is certainly true. Alistair was a kind of giant. Uh, He stood, you know, head and shoulders above all the other men in the army. He could fight equally with his sword in his right hand or in his left hand. Uh, He was a legend in his own right. Um, He was a quite extraordinary, very courageous warrior. So I think it is true that the initial successes did have a great deal to do with Alistair. But, uh, what Alistair could not have done, as we were saying before, was to actually join together his men with Scottish recruits, because they would not have accepted his authority, nor did Alistair actually have the King's Commission, of course. Um, nor was he a senior noble. He was a, um, a Macdonald chief. He, you know, he was, a, he was not a, just an, a, an ordinary man. But he wasn't a senior noble, which is the status, that, of course, that Montrose had. Then, as you come through into the campaigning season of 1645, uh, Alistair continues to be tremendously important as part of the army. But the Gordon cavalry, led uh, by um, these three fiery young men, Lord Gordon, Viscount uh, Avoyne, and Lord Lewis Gordon, are also very important in the battles that are fought. Uh, so. I would say that Alistair is of enormous importance, but he couldn't have actually uh, unified the army in the way that Montrose did. And the generalship of uh, Montrose in the battles that were fought, I think, is demonstrably a big reason why they were a success. Though it was a bit of a partnership, but I do I do think Montrose was um, very much the leader. Mm. Alistair
0: MacDonald, or McCullough, people might know him as had his own agenda as well, didn't he?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and that's why actually I've called him Alistair Macdonald. Um, as as you're right, is, is is there are books written about him in which he's called McCollar. But the reason I called him Macdonald um, was that he was, in fact, a Macdonald. He was part of the clan Macdonald. And the interests of the Macdonalds were in the Western Isles. So in the later medieval period, um, the Macdonalds had been lord of the Isles and had a sort of mini-empire. Uh, maritime empire, which they governed by galleys. Uh, and they still claimed a great deal of these lands, although they'd they actually also lost a lot of them, including losing them to the Campbells, by the way, to the earl or the marquis uh, of Argyle. And what, what what motivated Alistair most of all was a wish to try somehow to rebuild in the Western Isles.
0: Right. So, so of course, you know, at points, and you mentioned Philipore there, McCollar's not there at Philipore either, is he? He's off at Burnham. Yes, he left
1: left several times in the course of the campaign. As a matter of fact, he wasn't uh, present at the Battle of Alford either, uh, which which Montrose won without him. And he went off and he recruited. I mean, he went off. uh, He he always loyally came back until Montrose had won, uh, which, as I think we've said, was a sort of a temporary win, as a matter of fact. But when it seemed that Montrose had won Scotland for the king um, and had to, who were... Penetrate further south and move out of Scotland altogether. I think, you know, ideally, both Montrose and Charles I would love Montrose to have come further south and to have led armies in England and so on. Then, as the MacDonald thought, no, that's a step too far for me. Um, I'm going back to the Western Isles. And he does so, and fights on for a few years, but in fact, he is defeated and killed. think he dies in Ireland, as a matter of fact, in the end. Uh, but um, I mean the fact that he couldn't prevail, despite his extraordinary fighting skills and the toughness of his men, the fact that he couldn't prevail alone makes you think that, of course, uh, Montrose's achievements were more than just the extraordinary Alistair. It was it was something more than that. Yeah. So I think he was a very. I think uh, Alistair was an extremely imposing, a very you know formidable figure. He was a barbarian. I mean, I think also there's a sort of tendency to say Alistair was like a crazy man from the West. But, um, the McDonald's, they were pretty fierce and tough and, you know, no nonsense characters. But, you know, he was, you know, he brought priests with him. He was a cat. I mean, it was an issue, of course, but, but, but he was a Catholic, which means he probably would have understood Latin, for example, and, and so forth. I mean, he's an interesting character, Alistair, I think. Probably you know, about the same age as we don't know his exact age, but he's probably about the same age as uh, as Montrose actually. Right,
0: and and again, just talking there about uh, Montrose uh, potentially uh, coming south into England. Do you th- and this is quite a sweeping question, but do you think that he could potentially have won the Civil War or the English Civil War for Charles I if the king had managed to link up with him after Naseby? You
1: you you mentioned Mark before uh, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Who was probably the best of Charles I's generals? Uh, He was a cavalry commander. So, what I think is if Montrose and Rupert had worked together at the head of a royalist army in England, then maybe they could have defeated the now very tough and very formidable troops of the new model army. Uh, Quite possibly, I think, uh, because they were both very, very good leaders. I think Montrose alone could not have done that, and the reason was he was foreign. He was a Scot. to be a Scot um, in the 17th century was to be from another country. And later on, I think it was in 1648 a Scottish army does in fact invade England uh, in the second English Civil War uh, led by the Duke of Hamilton, and it's in fact trounced uh, by um, Cromwell. But the, the reason that Hamilton fails is partly because he's not a very good general himself. But secondly, no one from England would join his Scottish army. So I think that's the sort of living proof that you couldn't be a foreigner and impress the English and, and and win the loyalty of the English. They would they would be loyal to their own. And Prince Rupert, of course, is in fact half German and half English, but he was still a royal prince because he yeah. was the descendant, of course, of the grandson of James I. I don't. I don't think Montrose alone could have done it, for that reason, and and his Scottish troops didn't want to come into England with him,
0: uh, and and you see that don't you a lot of the time. You know, even Worcester, Charles II Second march, and you know Scottish troops yes. down. See it again in the Jacobite rebellions. You know
1: the and then later on the Jacobite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, I mean there, there was. You know a fair degree of antipathy between you know England and Scotland. Uh, I, in fact, in my book, I talk about this. I mean, some really quite nasty antipathy, from the very very scornful and uh, contemptuous feelings from the English about the Scots. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Scots didn't really like the English either.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was mutual. <laughs> I mean, I mean,
1: I mean, some some of them did, of course, but but you know, quite more didn't. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the
0: union of the crowns as well. Well, all George... that whole
1: interesting theme, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: sort of the Scots seeing it as uh, them in Hurst in England. Yes, the, no the, the the upper no, partner.
1: Quite quite complicated. I mean, nations <laughs> are complicated things. You know,
0: I mean, um, and and Philip so. September 45, McCullough isn't there, but there's wider reasons for that defeat, isn't there, than just McCollar's uh,
1: absence? So, well, the, the, the reason, I, 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 so, Philip um which is uh, fought in the lowlands of the, the, the border area of, of Scotland um, near Selkirk, uh, it's just on the outskirts of, of Selkirk. Is, uh, is, a, is a complete defeat uh, of Montrose by an army led by David Leslie. And the, the critical thing I think about that battle is, first of all, uh, Montrose was heavily outnumbered. Um, but in particular, he was outnumbered by, by cavalry. So, uh, David Leslie had about 3,000 cavalry, which is a very large cavalry force. Whereas uh, Montrose had by this stage um, real trained cavalrymen, had a hundred. He had another thousand troops who were mounted. These are called moss troopers, provided by the Marquis of Douglas, but they were like irregular soldiers who got around on horses in a way. They were mounted foot, is what they were, and they they didn't last very long. And they were still um, uh, David Leslie still had more than twice as many um, cavalry. First of all, and it was very difficult, uh, and this was constantly the problem for Montrose, was to try to have a proper cavalry force uh, throughout his campaigns. Um, so, so first of all, the odds were stacked very heavily against him. The secondly, I think the uh, local population uh, was loyal to the, to the government. Um, there is um, uh, a folk ta- uh, so, so, sorry, a folk song tradition that uh, local um, people helped David Leslie with intelligence, uh, and they certainly didn't give him away as he crept up on the Royalists. So I think the local population was against uh, Montrose. So he was outnumbered, in particular outnumbered in cavalry. Second, the, the um local population was against him. But I think also Montrose himself was in a state of semi-exhaustion. All kinds of things had gone wrong, um, which we'll talk about. But uh, what are the the worst things which had happened to him? was that having won all his battles, having survived this unbelievably difficult year in Scotland, he, his army left him. Uh, so Alastair MacDonald, as we said, uh, returned to the Western Isles. The Gordons, who came from the northeast of Scotland around the Aberdeen area, they also left him. They'd been very loyal to Montrose up to that point, but they didn't want any more of this fighting in the Lowlands, and they certainly didn't want to travel into England, as I think I said earlier. So his forces were very depleted. Montrose's forces were very depleted. And in addition, the king had not broken through and had not reached him and had not sent him any reinforcements. He also had a number of personal difficulties to deal with at this time. So I think he himself was exhausted. And there was certainly a uh, a failure uh, of intelligence. He didn't post enough sentries. uh, Even if he had, I think it would have been very difficult for him.
0: Yeah, so it's quite quite a lot of reasons then, and it's interesting what you said about him. Not you know being exhausted, not at his best, because it was unusual, wasn't it, that he spent the night away from his troops. He was quartered away from them. Is that, that's right. That no, no, they, they, they
1: were. They were. No, that's quite right. They were all. He. He was. I think. Uh, I can't remember quite where he was, but there was a town. There was a river in. Uh, in the this was the geography and. Some troops were on one side of the river, other troops were on the other side of the river. It was all a bit chaotic, and he himself was separate from the troops. There's every sign of exhaustion. So it took a lot of time also to rally. Once he was attacked, it took a lot of time, you know, to, to rally. Uh, although I still think they would have had a, you know, a very difficult fight, even if they had been more efficiently deployed at the outset. And they were taken by surprise. You know, they were all having breakfast uh, when David Leslie attacked. Yeah.
0: Talking about Montrose and his personal life, so he had his eldest son on campaign as well, didn't he? And, and um, his eldest son died on campaign, n- not um, killed in battle. I mean, could that have affected his performance as
1: well? Yeah. So his eldest son was called John, um, and he, was, uh, uh, he had the courtesy title of Lord Graham. And he died in March of 1645. Uh, and it is possible he seems to have died of sickness. It may well be that he had been with his father on the winter campaign, which we talked about before, which was an extremely rugged and severe campaign. When Montrose's army uh, reached the Campbell headquarters at Inverera on the West Coast in Ark Isle, um, the story was it was so cold that the sea had frozen. Um, it was a very, very severe, difficult campaign. And John was 14. So if he had been on that campaign, you know, he was pretty young uh, to be subjected to rigors of this. sort, We don't know, he may not have been. Um, his other son, uh, he actually had three sons, but his second son, James, was in fact throughout the period in one of the Montrose houses called Old Montrose just outside Montrose Town today. Um, but um, he may well have been on the campaign, which and in that sense, there's no question Montrose would have felt some degree of responsibility for his son dying. Um, we don't know, there's no account of his response to losing his son in this way, but everything else um, tells that we know of Montrose tells us that he was a very emotional man, um, a very loyal man, that he thought a lot about his family. There is a question about his wife, which we may come to, but about his family and his adherents. Um, uh, so I think the death of John would have been a tremendous blow as a matter of fact. And what also happened is, shortly after the eldest son died, the second son, James, was taken prisoner in the Covenant raid and uh, taken to Edinburgh Castle. Mm -hmm. So that was two of them. Uh, And there was plague in Edinburgh. And if you were a prisoner, plague was particularly dangerous, of course. Mm -hmm. So I think that was quite difficult for him.
0: So so if we move to um, 1649, January 49, and um, Charles I's execution, um, how did Montrose take the news of the king's execution?
1: So we have an eyewitness account from his chaplain, George Wishart, who says that when the news came through, and I think they were in Flanders at this time, so in 1649, um, Montrose had been on the continent of Europe for two and a half years. and the news came of the king's death, uh, which was unimaginable. It was impossible to think that the king could die in this way, put on trial, executed for treason, uh, his head cut off in front of his own palace in front of Whitehall Palace. It was profoundly shocking. Uh, and the reaction of Montrose, according to his um, chaplain, was he fainted, he collapsed. He was then brought round and Wishart, the chaplain, said to him, Okay, now, my lord, what you've got to do is avenge the king. Um, Montrose was very courteous in response to that. He collected calm and courteous, um, and went to his private rooms and stayed there for three days. He didn't emerge. But what he did do was he wrote a poet, a poem. Um, he wrote poetry quite often. He got quite a lot of it. Uh, and in the poem was a statement of his determination. To fight once again for the Stuarts and to avenge the king.
0: And then, if we move to sort of, you know, what happens to him after that. So, so Charles I had ordered Montrose to disband his men. Um, it took several commands before he obeyed. Um, yes, it took time. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah he left left Scotland um, in 1650. He comes back with Charles II's commission. Um, yes. So the, the new king's commission attempts to raise the highlands uh, and that ends in disaster. And obviously Charles II is signing a deal with the Covenanters at the same time, and then they defeat Montrose and leads to his execution. I mean, did Charles II knowingly send Montrose to his death?
1: No, I don't think so. I think uh, you have to remember that Charles II, at the beginning of 1650, was 19 years old. Uh, He was a very young man. And far too confident of his own ability to handle the situation, uh, which was a very difficult situation. So what he did was he gave instructions to, to Montrose, so to, as you say, a formal commission, to um, return to uh, Scotland and once again to fight uh, for him, the king, who is now Charles II, against the uh, Covenant to govern. But at the same time as doing that, he was in negotiation. He hadn't yet concluded but he was in negotiation with the king. Charles II was in negotiation with the Covenanters to see if they could have some kind of a deal so that he would be accepted in Scotland as king. So then, as King of Scots, he could uh, lead the attack on England and try to regain his throne in England also. So he was playing a double game. And I'm sure that what Charles II felt was that the threat of the brilliant Montrose, who was so extraordinary, would be a spur to the Covenanters to come to a good deal with him. Yeah. What he didn't realize, and this was the naivety of a young man, was that in making it plain, and he did make it plain publicly that he was negotiating with the, with the Covenanters. So he wasn't doing this secretly. Everything was quite public. He completely pulled the rug from beneath Montrose's feet. Cause what Montrose had to do was he had to land, in, which he went to first of all to, to, to the Orkneys, then he crossed to the Scottish mainland. And he had to recruit, so he had to actually raise an army in Scotland. He had some degree of not very well trained men with him, but he wanted the bigger army. But of course, if you knew that uh, Charles II was negotiating with the Covenanters, you know you were hardly going to
0: yeah.
1: uh, volunteer to fight with Montrose because there's going to be sacrifices coming up. Um, so he destroyed Charles II destroyed uh, Montrose's hopes, I think. But I think he did so inadvertently. I think it was. Mm. Uh, he simply was too clever for his own good. He expressed, I'm, I'm sure, a sincere regret afterwards uh, to Montrose's son, so this second son, James, who, who became the next Marquis of Montrose, about his father's death. And uh, I think that I think that was
0: sincere. Yeah, but as you see, I think that's something that is often sort of overlooked, isn't it? He's 19. He's just become king. He's not really going to be, you know, in control. Is he? He's got advisors there telling him what to do. You know, advise and sort of with their own, you know, opinions and agendas. So,
1: and 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 he was having a big struggle with his mum. And I mean, I mean, it was all Henrietta <laughs> like Maria was, you know, a strong woman, and it, it was quite com- in the Stuart family. It was quite complicated, basically. But I don't, I don't think. Um, so I don't in this in this matter of the death of Montrose. I don't think Charles II was duplicitous, uh, and I don't think he deliberately sacrificed him at all. Um, I think he was appalled by what happened, and that's also I. What I actually also think was I think the Covenanters accelerated uh, and as quickly as possible got Montrose onto the scaffold and had him killed because they were very worried the king would change his mind.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, and at the end of the day as well with Montrose, he kind of almost had that death wish, didn't you know? Even if he knew that the king wouldn't be able to, to sort of public. Publicly support him. I don't think that would have changed his his
1: opinion of at least. No, he did. No, he did. He was prepared. You have to. By this stage, he you know his eldest son had died, his wife had died, uh, his great friend and brother-in-law, who was like a father to him, Archibald Napier, had died. Uh, many people had died, um, and uh, he. The way I put it in when I write about this in, in my book, as I say he gave himself to the dream. The dream. This was this was the dreamy idealist. It was the Stuart saw nothing, uh, and if he was going to die, he was going to die. And then the manner of his death, which is really the climax of the whole story, is simply extraordinary. I mean, it really is worth reading about the way Montrose went to his death and how he died. Um, mm-hmm. He accepted everything, but it was really an extraordinary. And he and, and they thought that the crowds would be hostile and would throw stones at him and, and so forth. And and they were completely silent.
0: So Montrose's end. Tell us tell us a little bit more about that, you know, and, and how dramatic that was.
1: There was a final, not really a battle, but there was a confrontation in which he was again taken by surprise, and again taken by surprise by cavalry, as a matter of fact. This was called the um, Battle of Carbisdale, mm. um, and that was uh, in April, I think, of um, 1650. Uh, Montrose goes on the run. He ends up in um, a sort of small fortress uh, called Ardwick Castle, and is betrayed by the Laird of Ardric to the Covenanters. So he becomes the enemy. He becomes the prisoner of the Covenanters, and he's taken on a sort of um, a, a sort of progress of despair through Scotland down to Edinburgh. In which he behaves completely serenely. Um, he shows no bitterness or anger or resentment. And once he's reached Edinburgh, he's, of course, um, put, put into prison there. Uh, and he is hectored by Presbyterian preachers. Um, and, but he cannot, but, he's, but, but, but he believes so strongly that uh, um, fighting for the king. Was the morally right thing to do? That he cannot say no. I got that wrong. They say, look, if you admit you are wrong, we will lift the sentence of excommunication, and then you can go to heaven when you die. Um, but he said, no. I think I'm so right that I'm, I'm, I'm and 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 it is a moral Christian rightness, you know, that uh, I'm I, you know I'm, I'm going to take the risk. And then he is taken out to be hanged, uh, and there he is completely serene and extraordinary. And there's a sort of Aura of acceptance, uh, uh, about him, which is tremendously moving to the, um, crowds who come to watch. Uh, they don't heckle. They don't jeer. They are. And of course, they all know he is a great, uh, man. They know what his military record is. They have a great, actually a great respect for him. But he is in fact hanged. Um, as he is hanged, the, the hangman weeps. It's, it is quite extraordinary. Right. Yeah.
0: Is it true, um, or is this just a forked tale that Argyle peeped out of the shutters? Yes, yes. No, as he
1: um, as he's progressed, uh, uh, tied to a cart and it all sort of ridiculous through the streets of Edinburgh, um, Argyle um, and other governmenters, in fact, um, look down on him, and their eyes for a moment meet. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs>
0: So, so Montrose's um, personal life. So, obviously, by that time, Lady Montrose had died. Um, what do we or don't we actually know about uh, Magdalene?
1: I find it completely fascinating. So, I think so. Magdalen was probably about the same age as Montrose when they married. So, they were probably about seventeen. They were very young when they married. Uh, I think there's a good chance she was actually pregnant when they married. Um, you can work that out because we know John, the son, died at the age of fourteen. And obviously it depends exactly when his birthday was, but he was 14. We have that in the sources. So that could mean he was born only a few months after they got married. Um, they, they got married in, um, November of, uh, um, 1629. So I think it was young love. Uh, and, and Magdalene, you know, had other suitors, for example, Lord Ogilvy, cousin, the cousin of, uh, of Montrose right. also wanted to marry her. Um, so, you know, you know, she didn't have to marry Montrose. Anyway, she did. Um, the first three years of their life, they live in her father's house, which is called Kinnaert Castle, because they are so young. And of course, Montrose's parents, his mother died some time previously, both Montrose's parents are dead. And uh, they very quickly have two children, and they later on have another son. And it's possible they had a daughter later, called Jean, but but if so, she disappears from the record. Um, So the marriage in a way works, but... Um, in 1633, uh, Montrose is in France, and he stays in Europe until 1636. So he stays away for three years. Uh, and in fact, we know that he wanted to travel further. He only comes back to Scotland because his friends write to him saying, "Look, you know, Scotland is in meltdown. You've got to be here." Um, so he clearly, there was something wasn't working. <laughs> Wasn't working in the Montrose marriage, basically. Even making allowances for the fact that this was the 17th century, and that yeah. he was a great nobleman and all the rest. Of it. She, of course, was from exactly the same background. She was from the, you know, another grand, rich family, of course. Um, and then also, what we know is that um, he quarrelled with his father in law, so with Magdalen's uh, dad, uh, who was originally called Lord Carnegie, and then he becomes the Earl of Esk. Um, and they have a stand-up shouting match in the General Assembly of the, of the Kirk in Glasgow Cathedral in 1638. So, you know, the family situation is perfectly you know, in front of hundreds and hundreds of other people, uh, a horrible scene. So obviously the family situation is not very good. Nothing has survived of correspondence between husband and wife. Um, she's, she is a mystery, uh, and I think she's very, very interesting. Um, uh, but we know very little about her.
0: Uh, which leads us on to the next question. What What about Princess Louise Hollandine? Rupert
1: so, sister? Princess Louise Hollandine was the um, daughter of Elizabeth, Queen of Bohemia. Elizabeth, Queen of Bohemia, was the sister of Charles I. And so, Louise's, uh, one of Louise's brothers, was, uh, as you say, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who fought in the Civil War. Uh, so after his year of brilliant successes and then it all collapses and eventually he has to leave and he only just makes it because the, obviously the has want to kill him so he has to dress in disguise and he gets out um montrose travels around europe and he goes to different places first of all he goes to norway then he goes to denmark then he goes to um the dutch republic uh, and to the hague where the queen of bohemia lives um with her children who were not otherwise settled. She had a great many children. Uh, Louise um, is clearly one of the girls, uh, an extremely talented woman, 10 years younger than Montrose. Um, so Montrose was, I think, 36 at this time, so she would have been 26. Louise uh, is an extremely talented painter, for example. Uh, several of her pictures survive. And later in life she converted to Catholicism and became the abbess, in other words, the the ruler of um, an abbey in France called Maupuisson. Uh and that was a big job. That was like being a bishop. Um, I mean, she was a very formidable woman, Louise. And there was a story that there was a flirtation between Louise uh, and Matrose, which could well be the case. Um, the, the, you, you know, we have portraits of her; she she looks great, frankly. You know, they could well have been attracted. We don't really know, even. Such a famous man as Montrose, by this stage, a famous, really a celebrity in Europe, it would have been quite something if he married a royal princess. Um, so maybe there was a flirtation, maybe not. But what we know for absolute certainty is that Montrose got on really well with Louise's mum, with, with oh, yes. Elizabeth of Bohemia, because we can read the letters and they are extremely funny, uh, very lively. Uh, and tremendously attractive as a matter of fact. I mean, she was a very interesting woman in her own right. So to be honest, I was, she was about fifty. But I, you know, one can't see why there couldn't have been a bit of flirtation there as well. As <laughs> well, and I <was laughs> slightly wondered if that was the real flirtation. But anyway. Yeah.
0: Be <laughs> yeah, because um, is, isn't there a letter where she puts Montrose's painting up in her quarters? to scare yes,
1: away the the brethren
0: covenant, yeah, the, brethren, she calls the it. brethren is what she says
1: <laughs> so in case in case any of the presbyterian ambassadors come <laughs> to see her then they'll see his picture and then of course they will have to leave <laughs> <laughs> no, she's That's very, very funny. funny elizabeth the bohemian is great by the way uh, but um yeah, so we don't know we don't know if there's a flirtation with 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 louise maybe there was
0: yeah and then if it wasn't for queen victoria we wouldn't have um as you know, the, as much of a memorial as as we do. Yes, there's
1: a there's a very fine memorial to Montrose in St Giles' um, Cathedral, um, uh, and it, yes, it was Queen Victoria uh, who actually loved the Stuarts, of course, loved Scotland in a rather romantic way, rather than a practical way, perhaps. But then, anyway, she did love Scotland, um, and. Um, and she was amazed there was no memorial to Montrose. And so this actually rather beautiful uh, 19th century memorial was was made, and you can go and see it today. Uh, and and
0: then it, the last twist has to be that Argyle is just across the Weir, isn't
1: it? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yes, they're <laughs> con- joined in death. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and then, I, I think well, I think is a bit of a misery in myself. I mean, I find it very hard to make him a sympathetic character. But I think he was a more complicated. I mean, it's very easy to make him a villain. You know, if you take a romantic view of Montrose, if you wish to take a romantic in my book, I try not to be too romantic about it. I try to think, you know, to try to be as neutral as I possibly can. But I, en- yeah. I do end up being very, very impressed. I'm, I, I mean, I do have to confess that. Um, but if you are a romantic royalist it's very easy to pour scorn on Ar- Argyle which I don't think is fair on him I think mm. he was a complicated character um, but um, it is hard to make him sympathetic you know that has been
0: fascinating so thank you very much for your time not at all uh, very enjoyable I enjoyed that <laughs>
1: enjoyed the chat <laughs> yes.
0: I hope you've enjoyed listening as ever thanks for your support and join us next week